Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SoupX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6th and 7th, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced, SoupX is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Domingo Guerra. He's the president and founder at AppThority. Domingo, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Great to see you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing at AppThority is obviously super important, and it's only getting more and more important as kind of people move more and more online and into the cloud. But maybe before we kind of get into exactly what you guys are doing, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Absolutely. I grew up in Monterey, Mexico. Okay. Which is in the north part of Mexico, about two hours south of Texas. Okay. And so how did you go from being in Mexico to moving to America and going to school in America? And Monterey is well known for having an entrepreneurial background. A lot of the large companies in Mexico have started there. Okay. So I always viewed entrepreneurs kind of as heroes and, and role models, but felt that although there was great schools that I could have gone in, in Mexico, there wasn't a lot of an entrepreneurial opportunity for young startups. Okay. A lot of the companies now required a lot of investment and, and really a different kind of environment versus the software lean startup model we've seen in Silicon Valley and, and other parts of the U.S. So I wanted to get a little bit more prepared. I was able to go uh, do my undergrad in UT Austin uh, okay. and studied engineering. And then I started getting some work experience in robotics space and then in the semiconductor space and realized that I loved the product design aspect, but I wanted to have more of a say as to whether a product did well or not in the market. And I knew it needed more than engineering. It needed uh, product introduction. It needed marketing, operations, sales, uh, kind of other aspects to, to, to determine a product's success. Uh, I then went to grad school at Stanford, did a master's in engineering and product design, and later started working in product introduction at Brocade, so okay. cloud and networking tools. Yeah. And there I learned now not just the engineering, but how to work with operations, how to work uh, with product introductions and marketing, and said, okay, th this is cool, but now I want to see kind of what it takes to be able to launch a company, not just launch a product. Uh, so I started doing a part-time MBA at Santa Clara and Santa Clara University. And there I really was able to focus on entrepreneurship. I was able to shadow some of the professors that have built companies in the past and, and learn from them. And then I started running out of excuses and, and things to study and said, um, I, I have to really go try this out if I want to learn how to do this. I have to go try it and not just read about it or, or try to study about it. So in early 2011, uh, my co-founder and I started uh, talking about ideas and, and came upon mobility and how the enterprise was changing because of how we stopped, as users, we stopped using Blackberries and started using iPhones and then Androids and really dictating what technology was going to be used inside the enterprise. And we thought there would be a challenge there for traditional security systems 
um, and decided to explore it and, and try to build a company around that issue. Okay, so before we kind of get into authority, how did you meet your co-founder? I'm always curious. So I studied college in Austin, and then out here when I moved to California, I didn't really know anyone. So I started hanging out with a lot of the alumni groups uh, from different Texas schools. Uh, okay. And my co-founder had studied in Houston, uh, so not too far from Austin. And we, we found we had a lot of similar likes. We went snowboarding a lot, um, mountain biking, and then always talking about different business ideas. He was working at McAfee at the time okay. uh, under the Android uh, Research Center, and he was pretty happy there. He didn't want to leave. So we talked about ideas. I helped him with some of his projects uh, that he had uh, in terms of hobbies, uh, of building apps and, and building kind of security tools. And we said, well, if there's ever an opportunity, then maybe we'll consider launching, launching a startup. But at the time, it was just kind of talking about ideas. Okay, interesting. So at what point did you guys decide to kind of start Authority, and what exactly is it? So after I was finishing my, my MBA, one of the professors said, you know, you, you talk about your interest, but I see you're still working at a large company. When are you actually going to do something about it and not just talk about it? Kind of like a challenge. Sure. So, yeah, I, I said that that makes sense. I, it's time to put up or shut up. And I tried to recruit uh, Kevin, uh, my co-founder, to try and start the company. He had always been pretty happy at his firm until they got acquired uh, and they cut a lot of his projects. So that also ended up being a good timing for him in terms of saying, okay, let's go explore the opportunity. When we first started, our idea was not very uh, – well-defined. We just knew we wanted to do something around security of enterprise mobile devices. Um, because he worked in the security space and because I worked in the kind of enterprise software space, we knew we had to quit our jobs before we developed any IP. Okay. So it was a good time to start. We didn't have anything other than a general concept. And based on advice from the legal team that was helping us out to explore incorporation and, and how to actually build a company, we decided to just quit our jobs, apply for a grant uh, from the DARPA fund, which is a de Department of Defense fund to in 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 entice innovation in different fields. Okay. And there was a project around mobile security. So we thought, okay, that's a slam dunk. We'll win that. We'll have funding, and then we'll build a product and a company. Okay. So we quit our jobs. We applied for the grant, and we didn't win it. <laughs> okay. So okay. then we said, okay, let let's figure out what to do now. And we started bootstrapping and, and really building prototypes ourselves, going to friends we had in the enterprise or security or IT space to get feedback, and then go back to iterate and, and, and improve upon the ideas. The, the first product we were building was an Android anti-malware, because we said, hey, Android is going to be the largest market share sure. eventually. It wasn't at the time in 2011. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of problems and concerns around malware. And... The folks we talked to in the enterprise said, yes, we are afraid of Android, but because of that, we don't allow it in the enterprise at all. Interesting. So we realized we were building something that wasn't really ready for the market, or, okay. or the market wasn't in need for the solution yet from an enterprise perspective. So we kind of pivoted from there to try and focus not just on Android, but on iOS. And on the time, there wasn't really a lot of malware for Apple devices. So we said, what else are folks concerned about? And we realized that traditional enterprise software was purchased by IT, you would buy it from 
trusted companies like Microsoft, Adobe, sure. uh, other big firms. With mobile apps, they came from developers all over the world from all different backgrounds and all different sizes. Sure. So in general, IT lost their ability to buy software from trusted sources. They weren't even the buyer anymore. It was now the employees that were deciding what to install on their phones. And IT just didn't know what this software did. So rather than just look for malware, IT and security teams wanted to know everything an app could do, whether it was accessing permissions that weren't granted, whether it was handling data correctly, whether it was using proper encryption or proper security. So overall, the, the first product requests we received were around identification of, of threats within mobile software or mobile apps. And that's kind of how we started and how, how we found the name AppThority to really be the authority around application security uh, with a mobile uh, mobile first uh, goal. I, I, I love that kind of story of how you guys started up, right? That you literally, like obviously you tried to get some money, you, you didn't, but you kept going. You went to like friends in enterprise and kind of figured out your product market, right? I, I love that. I, I think that's, that's amazing and, and inspiring. And I think that's really good actually advice for people, right? Just trying to figure out something that they're looking to build and they have an idea and they're just kind of testing it early on, right? Especially with like real potential users. Absolutely, because from an academic setting, it seems easy to design a product or design a company or, and try to come up with a market fit. But unless you actually test it out in the field by folks that might actually use your product, you don't know of how well it's going to translate. Sure. So building an Android anti-malware seemed like a great idea. And if we look now, yeah, Android now has the largest market share and Android is finally allowed in the enterprise. Sure. But at the time, it, it was so obvious to build and such a big problem that the problem itself was almost prohibitive to even build the product because everyone was saying, well, we're just going to allow iOS that doesn't seem to have this issue. Right. Um, the other aspect with talking to potential users is you're able to identify maybe folks that can try out the prototypes and give you actual hands-on feedback so that you don't wait until you actually build the product to see if folks will like it. As you're building, you start getting advice and feedback and you end up building a much stronger prototype and then a much stronger product. Sure, and I also think that by allowing kind of your, your first early um, customers, even if they're not necessarily paying right out of the gate, they feel like they're helping you build a product that they're gonna wanna use one day and then they're not gonna have a problem paying for it, right? And I find they're a lot more loyal. Have you guys kind of found that as well? Absolutely, I think some of our early customers have given us a lot of the key features that have differentiated our product now, years later, sure. now that there's starting to be competition. And it's really a product that our customers built based on how they were going to use it and what problems they were solving, and not a product where we built and then tried to make everyone use it or do things our way. So as a designer, as a product developer, it, it's always when 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 you're building something, you obviously have your ideas, but if you're more humble about your approach, you're able to get feedback on on the folks that are going to be actually paying for it, and if it's something that they find they can be invested on because they feel they were part of it, they're going to be customers for life. Sure, I I think that's actually really good advice, and I think that's a really smart way to build a company and a startup, right? Like I, I don't, in, in some ways, I think that's kind of the best way to do it. So I, I'm curious to dive though a bit deeper into, I, I guess like hypothetically, if I'm, I run an enterprise company 
and I come to Authority and I say, you know, Domingo, like, how do I get started and what do you need to do? Like, if I'm a new customer, how do you onboard me and then walk me through kind of the whole process around that? So overall, we found that most companies might have different lines of business or, or different focus, okay. but everyone's solving or trying to solve the same issue of how do we protect our corporate data and our corporate assets from mobility. Now that more and more work is being done on people's phones or people's tablets, it used to be just email, but now we have applications that are going to be opening confidential data and sharing maybe private information. So how do we secure it when we don't own the software or we don't own the apps? It's usually now third-party right. apps that are touching this data. Or, or potentially so even don't even own the device, right? Like I could bring my own iPad and then start working on WorkDocs on some other third-party app that's maybe not Microsoft or Google or uh, iWork. Right? Absolutely. That's yeah. a great point. The, the whole phenomenon of BYOD or bring your own device was really started with mobile devices, but it's now tablets, laptops, and now maybe even bring your own network where folks are connecting to third-party clouds or third-party oh, data yeah, storage yeah. solutions and circumventing IT. Um, so a lot of our customers have different lines of business, but similar problems. And the first thing we want to understand is their overall high-level mobile strategy? Is it going to be mobile-first where any new software that the enterprise is building for their employees is going to be aimed at mobile devices, or are they still developing with laptops and desktops in mind? Gotcha. Do they have a BYOD policy, or are these going to be corporate-owned devices? Because we also find that as a company, they're able to do different things. If they own the device, they're able to be a little more restrictive if the employee owns a device, then you can still protect it, but maybe you have to be more open to the fact that it, you can't lock it down as much as if the company owned the device right. when, a folk, when a user is going to be also using it for personal, personal matters. Sure. Huge problems um, to solve, we, right? And oh, absolutely. And you guys are solving them. And, and we're solving them, but we've also seen that it involves now other parts of the company. It's not just IT or not just security, but we're seeing lines of business organizations and, and lines of business units getting involved because they want to be more productive. We're seeing HR and legal be involved because it might impact employee privacy on, on what you do on oh, the devices. And, and, and we're seeing legal teams worry about data retention and, and things like that for larger inter enterprise and for some legal fields and, and healthcare fields. We also now worry about HIPAA and PSI, personal healthcare information and PII, personal identifiable information and privacy. So there's now a lot of things that are touching mobile and a lot of parties that are worried about mobile, but it's not always well-defined who owns mobility. Whereas laptops right. and desktops always fall under IT, mobile devices or phones originally were coming out of maybe the, the, the teams that were doing purchasing through the large carriers and setting up phone lines, so maybe that was operations. Mm, uh, but if you're building a mobile app, it might be the actual business unit to build the app, and they want IT to deploy it. So. Everyone's involved. There's not always a clear owner, but we find that the overall, there's always a security stakeholder. Okay. Because companies are no longer ignoring mobility. They know that it's confidential data. They know that these apps are vulnerable and the devices are vulnerable. So no matter who starts the project, security is going to be involved, and that's usually where we come in. It's, we try to target the security teams. They're going to understand the need for the solution, but also they're going to have the list of requirements of what they want the solution to be able to automate 
because they themselves are short-staffed. And without automation, you end up having to do a lot of the work manually, and then it, it'll never get done because there's too many devices, too many apps inside each corporation. Sure. So we start having these meetings with our customers to paint a picture of how mobility looks now, but more importantly, how it looks in the next two to five years sure. so that we can then provide the right solutions to be able to not just solve the problem now, but future-proof it so that it's going to be feeding information to the right systems and the right tools for them to be able to incorporate not just mobility as a standalone concern, but really mobility as part of the overall organizational strategy going forward. Interesting. So, okay, so you meet with the teams, you guys decide on kind of a, a way to do that. Um, how do you begin rolling out kind of the software onto people's devices? Great question, Kevin. So most of the time when we're dealing with large enterprise, they've already made some investments around mobility. It usually starts with MDM, which is mobile device management. Okay. And these are companies like Mobile Iron or AirWatch that help a company send secure email to their employees okay. and maybe let the employees log into the corporate Wi-Fi and the corporate network. So they've already done the, the initial rollout of a certain technology to help them at least track who's online for mobile and what data they're receiving. And then the next step is saying, well, how do we now secure these devices? Sure. So what we've been able to do is give our customers two options. We can sit on top of their existing MDM uh, or their existing solution so that we don't have to install anything on the employee devices. Okay. Or if this is a new deployment, we can also provide our own mobile app then to deploy to the actual end users. So again, it used to be that you had to bring your computer to IT and they would have to install something. Now it's gotten a lot easier where we can just send everyone an email with a link and then they'll be able to install the software to, to move forward and, and, and protect their devices. But again, to make it even more frictionless, we're able to sit on top of existing technology and not even have to install anything there. So it's really about the customer's plan okay. and, and how they want to deploy. And then we work around that to make it easier for the customer and the employees. Okay, so let's put aside this, um, if I already have a solution and you're going to sit on top of my plan. So you send me an email, I download an app to either my Android or iOS device, correct? Correct. And then... What do I what do I do once it's installed? Like walk me through that kind of whole process of how you kind of monitor and encrypt my phone or the data at least. Yeah. So the the first step is actually just doing a very quick onboarding for the employee. Okay. They get a notification of saying, "Hey, we're going to help you protect not just corporate data but your personal data as well." Sure. We're going to help you identify risks that might already be on your device. Okay. But that's mainly what a lot of companies try to do in the mobile threat defense space where they're being reactive, like, hey, you installed malware, we caught it. Right. But we want to take it a step further and be proactive. To do that, we need to make the employees aware of risks before they even reach the device. Gotcha. And, and that does two things. It educates the employees, but it also adds a new layer of security because you tell an employee, hey, protect the firewall, they say, yeah, sure. They might not really care. Sure. But if you say, let's protect your personal data as well, and you give them easy tools to do that, then they end up protecting the enterprise data as a result sure. also. So how and are you we guys find that's doing that? So the easiest thing to do is when employees want to search for a new app, 
rather than search the app store and not know anything about the app in terms of what data it accesses, whether it's encrypting data, whether it's stealing data and sending it to China, we give them a search bar for any app they want to search for. So they, they can search for app by name or by description, like I need an expense reporting app. And then we overlay the results of millions of apps that we've already analyzed oh, and say, well, this app does this and this app does that. And even better, we can say this app is pre-approved for you based on your job role at this company because now our customers can write policies for their executives, have some some types of apps, their engineers, maybe different types of apps, et cetera. So now instead of just seeing a random expense reporting app, I know which one is recommended or previously vetted for me, and I'm able to download that on the spot. By company, uh, And they don't corporate? only have to do that for – Like by, by the corporate. company itself? Exactly. Okay, So the, the company, instead of building a list, traditionally in software they build a white list, which is a pre-approved list of apps, or a black list, which is a pre-rejected list of apps. Sure. But as you can imagine, with millions of apps and millions of versions out there, it doesn't really work in mobile. Right. So instead our customers write black lists on app behaviors. So uh, say, okay. I don't want any app that sends the password in clear text. Sure. Or I don't want any app that exports the corporate calendar and sends it to Russia. Sure. And based on these behavioral profiles, we then automatically approve or automatically reject apps based on, on those app behaviors. So now it's a lot easier for each employee to know what they can and can't download. And these policies are not just by corporate. They can also be by job role, by geography. Maybe my North America employees have a different policy than my European employees. Of course. Because yeah, there's tighter privacy laws in Europe. Or even by device type, if it's BYOD or corporate owned. Interesting. And then the same process happens for Android and iOS, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, and then, so, okay, now walk me through the other side where if I kind of have, like, how do you sit on top of my current um, security layer? So if you have a current security layer, you've already have something on your device that allows you to get email uh, securely uh, from work. Sure. And what we now do is we monitor the device integrity. If we see that the device goes out of compliance, we can cut your corporate email access. So you can still use your personal email, you can still surf the web, but you won't be able to access corporate email, corporate networks, or corporate apps uh, until okay. your device goes back into compliance. So then we'd notify the user of saying, hey, you install a fake version of Angry Birds that has malware, please remove it, and then you'll regain access. Interesting. And it used to be that IT had to manually notify each user when they were out of compliance and manually have to fix the phone afterwards. Now, by being able to automate this and have the employees self-manage and self-remediate, as soon as they're back in compliance, the system automatically grants them access again. So it's not just solving a security issue. It's also solving the bottleneck, which was the human issue of IT and security teams having to actively manage every employee device. And if the average company has five, ten, twenty thousand employees, that was a, a big nightmare for them. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. Like, yeah, like it, it's just it. You can't do it, right? I guess is what it comes down to, right? Like, it when it's that big, if you're not using somebody like you guys, you just can't do it manually. Like, you're not going to do it. It just doesn't work. So, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm curious then to walk me through a little bit more of. Do you guys kind of monitor the the traffic that's coming to my device? And and the example, I guess, maybe for, for the listener is, say I'm at like an unsecure network, like I'm at a Starbucks or some other coffee shop. Like 
do you guys monitor that traffic or or how do you or do you allow me to monitor that like how does that kind of work yeah so we've run into that a lot in in the corporate world sure. there's some tools that reroute the employees entire traffic through we'll call it a, a monitoring tool okay like to a vpn then there. kind of yeah, like there's VPN? some companies that do that approach. Okay. Well, yeah, there's some companies that send everything through a corporate VPN, but then it's very you run into a lot of concerns from a privacy perspective. And while oh. maybe that would be accepted on a corporate-owned device, it would be rejected and often is in BYOD devices. Sure. So we opted not to do that from an approach. So instead, we monitor the networks that you're connecting to and see if there's any known flaws there or they're not real keys. So are you using like a fake Starbucks or are you using oh. an unsecured network? Okay. And then we monitor every app in where they're able to connect, uh, whether they're doing certificate pinning, for example. So if an app is not doing certificate pinning, then you could be subject to a man-in-the-middle attack. Right. So if you're using that app in an insecure network, then you're definitely in trouble. Um, so we take those things into account so that behaviorally, we're able to protect the user and the enterprise data without snooping on the actual employee data or the employee traffic. Interesting. And that's where the proactive aspect comes into play and makes it so important is that we've pre-analyzed pretty much every app in either of the app stores. So we have a profile there. Right. And then we can also monitor the device in terms of what network it's using and whether encryption is enabled and, and whether it, um, it's, it's using known bad keys or known bad networks. And then we marry all that information to provide a profile a risk profile for each device and each user. Interesting. Um, so again, we can, we're able to circumvent the traditional model of routing everything through a VPN and instead rely on both behavioral uh, analytics from each application, but also on the device configuration and the network configuration. Right. So do I have to use a browser or an app provided to you guys, or I can just kind of surf the internet through Chrome and Safari or, or whatever browser I'm using, or, or how does that kind of work? Uh, absolutely. Sorry, you don't need to use a special app or okay. a special uh, VPN. By monitoring the overall device, we let employees be w using their, their native experience, which is what a lot of users have asked for. Uh, so we're able to still protect them without hurting the user experience. Okay, no, that's, that's awesome. So you guys kind of have an app running in the background all the time, or, or how does that kind of work? We either run our app in the background or again, if the MDM is already installed, we can use them as our oh, okay. mobile agent. Okay. But yeah, there's always basically an app running uh, that monitors the list of apps that are installed, the networks, the device settings, the the overall device configuration uh, for user uh, users to know whether they're compliant or not, and also for IT to be able to see which com which devices compliant or not. Right. Okay. The other thing we introduced is what we call blind enforcement. Okay. So this is specially uh, designed for BYOD devices, where IT wouldn't know maybe my name, so they wouldn't know, hey, this is Domingo's device, and, and maybe there's a healthcare app or, or something. Uh, they would just know device XYZ is compliant or not, and then if it is compliant, let that user access everything that user can access, and if not, cut access to the user. But that way, someone in IT wouldn't know if I have a, a healthcare app that maybe I want to keep private. Uh, okay. So it, it helps employees protect their privacy, uh, but it also helps IT have peace of mind that the device is still in compliance. Sure. Well, and then using a third party like you guys, you guys can 
kind of control that privacy too, right? I think like people feel like employees feel better when there's like a third party involved instead of just like if a company built basically like a version of your software just internally for their company, right? I think by using a third party like you guys, employees feel better saying, well, somebody else has, you know, is, is monitoring what a company's doing too, right? And then also you guys are on top of it a lot more than if a company's building this internally. Yeah, you're right. And overall, there's two things that it does being a third party. One is, as you said, they say, well, it's someone that's going to be unbiased. It's not going to be my employer that, that maybe wants to do things a certain way. But by also providing information uh, to the employees, it's not just IT saying, no, you can't do this because we said so. Right. It's, right. hey, here's an expert saying it's probably not a good idea because of the following reasons. But, hey, we're not just saying don't use this app. We're saying, hey, here's another app that you, you might want to use that does the same function but has much better security. Right. So it's providing an alternative, right. not just saying no. Well, and then I'm assuming that you guys are collecting data across all your clients, maybe anonymously, but so you could say like, like you're pulling from a bigger, broad range of, of companies saying like these apps are more secure or are better to use than others because of your company profile, right? Where if you were building this internally, you'd have to do all this research yourself. And like, that's an astronomical amount and like, it's full-time job for like many people. Correct? It, it, yeah, that's true. And, and overall we see companies both at the security and, and IT, but also at the employee level, there's a lot of curiosity of like, well, what are my peers doing or, or what are folks downloading? Or sure. I know this is a work device, but why are there a lot of kids games? And we realize that folks share their phones with their kids when they get home, sure. even if it's a, a work device. So it, it is something where folks want to learn more about the trends, want to learn about what's popular and what folks are doing to go around certain security concerns and, and how to solve them. Sure. So I'm curious to know, and we kind of alluded that, to, well, at least when you and I had a conversation um, before, um, what's the difference between Android and iOS from kind of a threat level? I don't, I don't really care about like preference, right? Like I don't really want to get into that conversation, but like just from a strictly kind of security side of things, have, what have you found that like, I guess, what are the pros and cons of Android and what are the pros and cons of iOS? So at a very, very high level, they're very similar. Okay. They're both now somewhat of a walled garden. Uh, Google controls, if you're just using Google Play as the official app store, then Google does a pretty decent job of reviewing apps for malware and high-level risks okay. before they get deployed. And Apple has a long tradition of being very strict with what gets into the iTunes app store, so they're reviewing stuff as well. The other thing to consider is, again, most of the popular apps are built by the same developer for both platforms. Right. So okay. you, you go to Facebook, you go to whatever, Twitter, it's going to be pretty much the same app on, on either platform, most games as well. Sure. So you start with a playing field where it looks very, very similar. Where they differ is that Android doesn't have to be closed. You have the option of using third-party app stores. Right. Now, Google doesn't recommend it, but they don't restrict you. They, they let you do that. So sure. if you wanted to download a third-party app, you're able to do so. The problem there is, that, again, that app hasn't been reviewed, hasn't been analyzed for security. So you're putting yourself and your device at, at a great risk by doing so. 
for Apple, in order to install a third-party app, you have to sideload it, either jailbreaking your device or tricking your device into installing it. It's a lot more complex sure. uh, to do so. So what most companies do is that they allow Android, but they block third-party app stores. Gotcha. If you do that, then pretty much they're going to be the same. Um, we do see higher malware on Android, but again, that's because there's so many third-party app stores out there. Right. And so many folks that say, well, I don't want to pay for this app. I'm going to go to a third-party app store where I can get it for free, not knowing that they're getting a, a version of the app that has malware. Right, right. Okay. And then can you guys detect the malware in those third-party apps then? Absolutely. Okay. We're able to still do behavioral analytics to see how the app behaves. We're able to see how the app is built through static analysis and then dynamic analysis, how the app runs and how it behaves at runtime. Now, we've pre-collected most of the apps on the official app stores. There's a lot of apps out there on third-party app stores maybe that we've never seen. So we need to actually sure. see the app to be able to analyze it. You won't be able to be proactive with a third-party app store because it might not be in our database as sure. the well as, as way as you can be proactive with the official app store. So it's still safer to use the official app store, uh, even if you have security installed on your device. Right. So I, I know, and, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. Like, obviously, and, and well, maybe I should, for people that don't know how Android kind of works, is it's almost similar to, well, if, if you install something outside of the Google Play Store, it's similar to installing something on like your Windows or Mac computer. You'd literally just download the file, you just hit install and then it installs as long as you have the a checkbox check saying you third-party apps. So Mike, just to pr just so people understand my question that if they don't understand Android is when you know those like third-party APK sites that say, well, you know, um, if you want the new version of this Google app or some other app before it actually gets updated in by the Play Store, you can download the APK and it said it's like securely signed. Is that truly secure, and can you guys kind of test that? And ha have you found that's really secure, or is it still kind of maybe, maybe not? There's not really a way to know until it's kind of run through like a service like you guys. Yeah, most of the time I would say that if it's not in the App Store, you're taking a big risk. Okay. If it's not in Google Play yet. Um, a lot of times the developer might, even if it's on the developer's website, they might have some vulnerabilities that they themselves didn't see, but oh, maybe Google would have caught them with their with their testing. Uh, and sometimes developers are using third-party code, third-party libraries, third-party SDKs, where they don't even know that they might have malware or introduced something vulnerable, but it, it might come up during testing and approval. Right. Uh, the other thing we see a lot is folks pretending to be developers. Uh, and if you're always used to downloading the app from Google Play and then you go to a developer's website, it might look legitimate, but it might not really be the developer's website. Sure. Um, the other example we saw is uh, Mario Run came out on iOS. Yeah. It hadn't been released on Android, and a lot of folks on Android were tricked into downloading a malware version of the app because obviously it wasn't on Google Play, but they were told, hey, if you go to this special website, the developer can let you have it. Um, and, and, and it's used in social engineering kind of attacks very, very often. Okay. No. Yeah, I remember that. And actually, that that's actually a really good example of something because it's not even out for Android till March. At least the pre-order right now is up. And then the, the thing that I find interesting along those lines, and it was kind of actually good that you kind of brought that up. So what can people get from 
your device, I guess. Like if somebody, if I install something, some malware, what can people get from my phone? Just for people listening. It's really scary when we think about it because it is the ultimate spying tool. Uh, it's a computer. Sure. Your, your smartphone is a computer that's pretty much on you 24-7. Most people sleep with their device right next to them. It's the first thing they grab when they wake up. It has cameras, not just one, but usually one in the front, one in the back. Sure. It's got microphones, so it can record your audio as well, record your video, take your pictures. It has location tracking, so it knows where you are 24-7. It has your calendar, so it knows where you're going, who you've met with, what meetings you might be attending. It's got all your text messages, all your emails, all your phone calls, all your contacts, information on who you know. A lot of times, financial apps, your banking, healthcare apps, dating apps. It's got our whole lives. Sure. Um, if you lose your wallet, you can cancel your credit card. You can get a new driver's license. But if you lose your phone and it's not properly protected, you can lose a lot of your digital identity, a lot of your, your digital information. So I always see smartphones as a great tool, but also a, a very dangerous item if it's misused, if it's misplaced, or if it's uh, hacked and, and then taken over. And in terms of what folks can access, there's all all types of permissions that a developer might ask for, like asking for your calendar or for your location. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times we don't think about what, not just what is accessed, but what's going to be done with it. Right. So if we share our address book, is it read-only or, or is the developer going to copy it and send it to Russia and then sell it to all these malicious sites that can then spam us and spam our, our friends and contacts, right? Right. So there's a, a lot of information stored on our device that's ours, but there's also a lot of information that is not ours. Uh, it might be work data, it might be friends or family data, uh, and, and we have a responsibility, I think, to, to try and protect that. Again, not just our work data, not just our personal data, but the fact that we have contacts for a lot of our friends and colleagues. Sure. No, I, I think that's that's really good. And you, I think like just having the conversation and getting people thinking about this stuff, I think is super important, right? Because maybe their company or they're not working for a company that has thought about this, but I think if they're not, it, it seems crazy to me, but there, it's only going to get more and more kind of needed as we move more and more things to the cloud. And so I'm curious to know, have you guys ever, or have you guys moved into like the cloud technology space or is that not something you guys do or is it something you're looking at or is it kind of still a little bit of the wild west and you can't really do too much about the cloud kind of space? So we definitely leverage cloud technologies. Uh, most of our analysis engines are cloud-based, so we take advantage of that so we're able to scale uh, as required. So, for example, we onboarded uh, a large customer recently with over 100,000 devices. Wow. And if each device has 100 apps, it's tens of millions or hundreds of millions of different app instances that need to be analyzed in real time. Um, so we definitely employ cloud technology uh, in our analysis engines. We also started seeing that now a lot of apps are relying on cloud technology to be more efficient. Uh, so a lot of the apps have multiple servers that they call back home to, and depending on where in the world you are, they might go to a different cloud or a different instance of a cloud as well. Uh, and then in terms of cloud storage, it's become very popular, especially since 
now the cameras on the devices have very high resolution and a lot of the pictures or videos you take will consume a lot of your space. So folks are doing automatically backups and backing up their pictures and audios and, and videos, et cetera. So we see a lot of apps now let you connect and to different cloud storage providers. So we know the importance of cloud. We know that folks need access to secure cloud environments, but we also know that a lot of IT departments are still not very happy about the employees leveraging cloud technologies. But our view is that if you're going to block all clouds, then folks are going to circumvent it right. and then use something that might not be secure. You might you might want to avoid the the unsecure clouds, but at least offer your employees an alternative or an option. So if you don't want cloud vendor A, but you're more confident in cloud vendor B, gotcha. then maybe block cloud A, but enable cloud B and, and, and show users how to access it or, or how to uh, use it to secure uh, their data. Gotcha. So I, I, I do think that it's it's blurring. It's starting to be where you, you won't be able to separate cloud from mobile, from desktop. It, it's all just going to be connected, and it pretty much almost already is, but it's getting to the point where it's not just the tools that employees are using. It's going to be the tools that IT is using are going to be leveraging cloud technology more and more, and, and that should make them be a little more comfortable uh, with uh, adopting these technologies. Right, and you guys could kind of monitor the connection and, and files similar to how you, you, what you mentioned before with apps and kind of traffic when you're connecting to cloud technologies? Yeah, absolutely. So we're able to see the connections of where the app is connecting. We're able to see how that connection is protected or not, if it's encrypted, if it's using certificate pinning, uh, if making sure that it's not transmitting the passwords uh, in clear text or anything like that. And then we are starting to build better and better reputational systems on each of the different cloud vendors and, right. and cloud providers based on how well they've implemented security in current and past versions of their APIs and, and their apps. And that can help us then score an application of saying, well, this app connects to 20 cloud vendors and only two of them are secure versus this app connects to only secure vendors, uh, cloud vendors. So maybe that impacts the score in a positive fashion for that application. Got you. No, that that's awesome. So what's kind of next for you guys? Like, is it what, like, do you guys just keep kind of going down, you know, the mobile thing? Is there kind of other spaces that you guys are exploring? Do you, are you going to move to say like Windows phone or is that relevant or Blackberry? Well, Blackberry runs Android now, so that's kind of a, irrelevant, but like, what's kind of next for you guys? I think there's a few things that we've done in the last few months and, and going into the future. One is, as the space matures, we're obviously not just looking at mobile apps anymore, but we're right. looking at the complete mobile device. So the network, okay. the vulnerabilities of the OS, the device configuration, and of course the applications, which is our, our main DNA, and, and in our opinion, still the most important contributor to the state of the device from a risk perspective is what apps you're running and what data they're handling. But overall, we're being asked by the IT and security teams to not just feed information maybe to the MDM or to the mobile device manager, but can we automatically update firewall settings? Can oh, we automatically update uh, Splunk and, and SIM and, and, and other kind of tools that aggregate a lot of the security information as a corporation as a whole so that security or sorry, so that mobility is not a standalone concern, but part of their overall security strategy and overall the security visibility. So we're getting a lot more requests uh, for that kind of movement. And I think that signals that security is not going to be just looking at 
corporate security and then mobile security. Mobile security is, is security. Everything's going mobile. As we said, everything's going cloud. So now it's going to be part of the overall security mission for a company, and it's going to include mobile. But because the different tools are talking to each other and I connect to my mobile device and I connect to the work cloud and then to the public cloud, and et cetera, everything has to work together. Everything has to communicate with each other. And I think that's the direction we're seeing is that it's part of an automa- automated system to free up IT and security teams and only be alerted if there's something that, that goes wrong and you couldn't automatically fix, for example. But otherwise, it needs to be automated. It needs to be integrated to all the different tools. And it needs to be something that scales out at the speed of mobile and at the speed of kind of the cloud and, and app development that we've seen. No, I, I think that's that's really interesting to me. But sadly, we're out of time. So maybe let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about uh, AppThority and yourself, if you want to mention any uh, links as well. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. So folks can find AppThority at AppThority website. It's www.appthority.com, A-P-P-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y. On Twitter, at at AppThority as well. And we've got a great blog, our mobile threat blog, that covers both things that impact the consumer uh, but also an uh, enterprise-specific threat blog. Uh, with, with We filter all the threats and all the news out there and really distill it into what matters to the enterprise, why it should matter, and what to do about it. So I think those are some resources that might be helpful to folks that might be listening. Uh, I'm happy to chat with anyone. Uh, you can reach us, again, through the Authority website or Twitter, and we'll definitely follow up and see what we can do to help. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Domingo, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.